0: All right, welcome back to our series of Current Culture. This week is Lesson 7, God's Truth on Alternative Lifestyles. Now this is a very hot topic today. Alternative lifestyles are very popular in today's culture. Uh, things such as homosexuality and other sexual immoralities are very popular. They're, they're celebrated, but that doesn't make it right and today we're going to take a look at what god's word has to say about it this might be difficult to hear for some people it can be difficult when you have family members that believe differently or uh, maybe partake in some of uh, these kind of relationships but again i'm not going to give you um, my personal opinion on these matters but what god's word says and as believers uh, we need to abide in His Word. We need to, to follow His Word and accept His Word as truth. And uh, we're going to get right into it today. We're going to begin with God's view on marriage, and then we're going to look at God's view and truths on alternative lifestyles. So join with me as we uh, take a look at some scripture and God's Word and see what He has to say about alternative lifestyles. So firstly, we are going to look at God's truth on marriage. God created male and female. On the sixth day of creation, God created the first man and the first woman. Both man and woman are equally made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God means each man and woman has the elements of personality, such as intellect, emotion, and will. So, the Bible leaves no possibility that humans are descended from apes through evolution. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We can see here some important distinctions being created in the image of God versus descending from apes by chance. Since we have been created by God, He has a purpose for each of us and holds each person accountable. If we view humanity through an evolutionary worldview, each person is his own authority and is basically free to determine his own purpose. But we have a Creator who made us in His image. God created man and woman in unique ways. God first created Adam from the dust of the ground. He then created Eve by taking a rib and some flesh from Adam's side. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. If we go down to verses 21 through 22, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Can you see how God was careful to describe how he made both male and female? It shows that God had a personal purpose in making each gender different. So, when we hear these beliefs from our culture about the physical relationship between people that contradict what we read in the Bible, we must understand that they are wrong. God is the authority on how a man and a woman are to relate to one another physically. God is the authority over humanity, and He gave Adam and Eve commands to obey. They were told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the animal kingdom. Procreation is not a miracle of evolution, it is part of God's purposeful plan. So God created both male and female, and He also designed the marriage relationship. He designed the marriage relationship, and this is the second point we are going to look at. The Bible teaches complementarianism between man and a woman, rather than egalitarianism. In complementarianism, man and woman are equal in essence but different in their function or their role. God designed the man to be the head, or the leader, of the woman in marriage. In the creation account, Adam was incomplete by himself, so God created Eve to be a helper for Adam. God then brought Eve to Adam, and what followed is God's design for marriage. This is all found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. In general, Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that involves a spiritual commitment and a physical union. There are three specific aspects to God's definition of marriage that we see in Genesis 2, verse 24. Well, let's start by reading verse 24, and then I'll break it down. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife And they shall become one flesh. So firstly, there is independence from parents. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Secondly, uh, there is a commitment of a man to his wife before the Lord. It says a man shall be joined to his wife. Thirdly, there's a sexual union. It says that they shall become one flesh. So God designed man and woman with different bodies as part of his divine purpose. Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3-5 through that in the physical relationship between man and woman in marriage, that they are to meet each other's physical needs. He writes, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We read in Proverbs that a purpose of physical union is pleasure, And satisfaction Proverbs 5 starting in verse 15 drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well should your springs be dispersed abroad streams of water in the streets let them be for you alone and not for strangers with you let your fountain be blessed and be glad in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe let her breasts satisfy you at all times be intoxicated always with her love so why should you my son be intoxicated with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a foreign woman god designed the marriage relationship to have independence from parents a man committing to his wife before god and sexual union between the two A third important truth is that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explains the roles of a Christian husband and a Christian wife to one another. God expects the wife to submit to her husband. Chapter 5 verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. To be subject or to submit means to place oneself under authority submission is a voluntary decision on the part of the wife to place herself under her husband's authority and to allow him to lead submission is to be done as to the lord a wife should submit to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife just as christ is the head of the church it says as to the lord and then in verse 23 We see that it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Christ has given the leadership role of the marriage to the husband. A wife should submit to her husband just as the church submits to Christ. Verse 24 says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. The church is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wife is under the authority of her husband. The Christian husband should love his wife because Christ loved the church. I'm going to read verses 25 through 30. Husband, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Christ loved the church by dying on the cross for her. Christ loves his church today by providing care and guidance. Verse 32 says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with references to Christ and the church. Well, this shows how seriously God takes his definition of marriage. It's so serious that he describes marriage as a reflection of his relationship with the church. A Christian marriage is a picture to the world of Christ's relationship with his church. And from what we are reading here in Ephesians, the definition of a marriage is important to God. So what would a so-called marriage between two men or two women do to this picture of Christ in the church? It would destroy it. It would completely shatter his design. God specifically defines marriage as between one man and one woman. He leaves no room for alternatives. But sinful man has taken God's perfect design and created all kinds of sinful perversions of God's definition of marriage. Marriage was created to reflect Christ and the church. The husband loves his wife to reflect God's love for his church. The wife willingly submits to the husband to reflect how the church submits to Christ's authority. This is God's design. We looked at what God's word has to say about marriage. We looked at some truths from the scriptures and uh, what God's design for marriage is. Now let's look at God's truth on alter- alternative lifestyles. Um, all the way back in the garden of eden adam and eve chose to sin and chose to disobey god they ate from the tree that they were instructed not to eat from and because of that their relationship with god was destroyed and even their relationship because of sin now was destroyed it is now not the same as it used to be it's not perfect anymore and because of their actions uh, there's consequences to what they chose. There was a curse given. And now, because they chose to sin, it's told that women are going to have pain in childbearing. And they're going to constantly fight for control of their relationship with their husband to be the head uh, of the marriage and the household. For man, the consequence is to work the ground and it's going to be difficult. He's now gonna have to work much harder than was originally designed by God. It's not gonna be as yielding as it was. He's, you know, the ground's dry and and full of thistles now. Um, And that was a consequence for Adam. But the greatest consequence that came out of that decision was that our relationship with God has been disconnected. Uh, We are now separated from God. And uh, that's the greatest thing that happened, the most devastating thing that happened uh, from that choice uh, in the Garden of Eden. And God has made a way to fix that. He has graciously uh, provided his son as a sacrifice so we can be reconciled to him. That is a a great gift from God. And I hope that you've you've made a decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins, because then we can be restored and have a relationship with him but ever since that time um, because of adam sin has entered the world and under uh even because adam sinned now all have sinned we we find that in romans chapter five so every single person now that is born is born with a sin nature Uh, their their mind is corrupt their behaviors are corrupt uh, they're, they're not living righteously as God originally designed. Therefore, since we're, we're born this way, sinful perversions begin to take place. And it's uh, no wonder that the definition of marriage and uh, sexuality is beginning to become more and more perverse and it's, it's becoming uh, opposite of what God's original design was. In our sinfulness, uh, we are wicked and we're evil and we are perverse. And if we follow our sinful nature, it's going to lead us away from God's plans for our life. Let me ask you a question. What attitudes lay at the root of the perversions of God's plan for intimacy and marriage? It's the attitudes of rebellion selfishness, and pride, wanting to do things our own way instead of how God says we should. The Bible condemns the sinful perversions that man has imagined and come up with. This condemnation still applies even in today's culture of tolerance and acceptance. In the scriptures, God gave us his truth to guide us in forming our perspective on sinful perversions of God's plan for intimacy and marriage. The first truth we're going to look at is that God calls sexual sins an abomination. God speaks against perverse sexual sins with clarity. One such sin is cross-dressing. Cross-dressing are those who dress in order to appear to be of the opposite sex. God gave instructions to Israel concerning those who cross-dress in order to appear as a person of the opposite sex. Deuteronomy 22 verse five, says a woman shall not wear man's clothing nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing for whoever does these things is an abomination to the lord your god it's very clear that god says cross-dressing is an abomination to him god abhors what he calls abominations believers should share his abhorrence what else does god call an abomination well, let's look at proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19 there are six things which the lord hates yes seven which are an abomination to him haughty eyes a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans feet that run rapidly to evil a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers Haughty eyes means a proud look. But we also see a lying tongue, killing the innocent, devising wicked plans, being quick to do evil, being a false witness, and creating discord among people. God hates all sin. Cross-dressing and lying are both abominations to Him because they are both sin. They both violate God's holy nature. And God does not change. He is not okay with cross-dressing or any other sexual sin because somehow our culture has progressed. Society's eagerness to accept all sorts of ways of expressing oneself sexually is not endorsed by God. Sin, whether it is a sexual sin or not, will always be an abomination to God. Secondly, not only does God call all sexual sins an abomination, but he calls for separation and not tolerance. So, not being tolerant, uh, this might be a hang up for some people. If you don't have a biblical worldview, society is telling us that we need to be tolerant and accepting of people. But God does not call us to tolerance but separation. In the church in Corinth, um, There was toleration of sexual sin inside the church and they were finding it even admirable that this was going on but God condemned this action and he was demanding that they separate from this member partaking in this sin it was reported to them that there was a man who was having sex with his father's wife okay this was probably his stepmother Okay? This was something that not even unbelievers were doing, and yet this man was doing it inside the church. And Paul instructed the church to remove this immoral man uh, from being a member of the church. Now, this separation was going to help the members to see the seriousness of sin, It's going to challenge the immoral man to repent and forsake of the sin that he's partaking in. And being separated from the church uh, is an important step in helping him to see his need to separate from his wicked sin. God then calls for separation from sexual sin, uh, whereas the world is encouraging and, and, and wants you to celebrate sexual diversity. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, also was sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." So instead of being accepting and tolerant, our response should be one of purity and sincerity and truth. Now verses 1 through 8 of this chapter are dealing with uh, a believer that is sinning in the church. However. Uh, A response of accepting and tolerance towards someone living in sexual sin is never the proper response. So what should our response be? What should our actions be towards someone, especially an unbeliever who is lost in sin, whether that's a sexual sin or not? What is the way that we should respond towards them? Well, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 1-14 1-14 through 14 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy or who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord walk its children of light for the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord and do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead even expose them for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, as believers, we are to shine as the light of God's truth to those who are lost and living in sin, including sexual sins. God does not applaud tolerance of sin. He desires holiness and truth communicated by believers with an attitude of love and concern. We should have love and concern because that brings me to my next point. God brings wrath on the sexually immoral. He brings wrath on the sexually immoral. So let's remember what God's wrath was in Abraham's day. God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is a clear example of God's wrath towards sexual immorality Um, if you remember the story with me in Genesis chapter 19 Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed there's two angels that go to the the city of Sodom to try to rescue Lot and his family when the angels arrive in the city uh, the group of men From the town, come to Lot's house because they want to have sex with these two angels who appear as men. Lot is trying to prevent them uh, from doing this and they keep pressing him. So much to a point that Lot, I, I don't understand this, offers his two virgin daughters to the men to do whatever they want to them well the angels need to save lot they pull him into the house they blind and confuse the men so that they don't break down the door that's how hard they're pressing after these two men and because of this the severity of the sexual perversion and wickedness that was going on god destroyed the cities of sodom and gomorrah his wrath came upon those cities we also find in jude that he describes the reason for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that it was due to their sexual sins. He writes in verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as those in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So he's describing the the gross sexual immorality that brought God's wrath. But he's also telling us that the burning of these two cities is a foreshadow of the eternal fire that will torment all sinners who have not trusted in Christ as their Savior. If we take a look at 2 Peter 2 verse 6, we can see the purpose for the account of Sodom and Gomorrah and how it can serve us today, what we can learn from it. So 2 Peter 2, verse 6 says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So it serves as an example for us. It's a warning to those who live ungodly lives. So when interpreted normally, the Bible condemns homosexuality in all other forms of sexual immorality. One would have to violate clear Bible passages in order to teach that God wants us to celebrate homosexuality as another variation of his design. The Bible clearly warns of God's wrath that is coming on those who live sexually immoral lives. Not only do we see God's wrath in Abraham's day, but we see God's wrath in Moses's day. Later on in the Old Testament, God gave a command in the Mosaic law. And we find this in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. If we read further into chapter 20, verse 13, It then tells us that the penalty of those who practice homosexuality is death. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. As Christians, we are no longer under the Mosaic Law. Uh, We are under a new law, which is referred to as the law of the Spirit, or the law of Christ, or the royal law. But there are some things from the Mosaic law that are uh, reinforced in the New Testament that we do have to follow. And there are other things that have been abolished, things such as the dietary laws or the wearing of mixed fabrics. We don't have to follow that anymore. But condemnation of homosexuality is clearly reinforced in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 says, For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another males with males, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, that's the wonderful part, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. First Timothy one, nine through 10, knowing this, that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Both the Old Testament and New Testament agree. It is always wrong to murder, rape, and steal just as it is always wrong for a person to have sex outside of marriage or with a member of the same gender. God's standard of righteousness does not change. Now, God is not calling believers to hunt down and kill homosexuals because of that law in Leviticus chapter 20. That's under the Mosaic law. We're not under that law anymore. But I think it's important to understand that if that was the consequence for that sin to his people back then, then that type of sin is very serious in his eyes. Uh, so any kind of sexual immorality, any kind of sexual sin, is, um, brings the wrath of God upon them, just, just the same as any other sin. Um, but God's wrath abides on those who practice sexual immorality. Let's talk about God's wrath in our day. God has wrath on sinners still today. Paul was clear in his letter to the Romans that all sin, not just sins described as sexually immoral, are deserving of God's wrath. All sin runs contrary to God's holy nature. But Paul did go on to say in his letter to specifically mention homosexuality as deserving of God's wrath. I'm going to read Romans 1, uh, verses 18 through 28. This is an important passage to understand. We need to understand that we are sinners storing up God's wrath on us. This is a timeless truth, and it certainly applies still today. So beginning in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Because unbelievers have rejected the revelation of God, God has given them up in judgment and uncleanness to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God has also given them up to vile passions. Paul gives two examples of this judgment. First, females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. This is referring to lesbianism. Second, males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty to their error. This refers to gay men. Paul doesn't say to just accept homosexuals because they can't help how they are sexually oriented. No, he is clearly stating that homosexuality has its origins in humanity's vile passions and that such a sin is deserving of death. Here is where I can share with you some good news. I know I've been talking about God's wrath and how he's going to pour it out on the sexually immoral, but here's where there's some good news for you. Here's where there's great news. God gives hope for the sexually immoral. God provides hope. Let's look again at that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10. through Paul lists different kinds of sinners, including some who practice sexually immoral lifestyles. The sexually immoral, or fornicators, as you might see in a translation, describe those who practice sex before marriage. Adulterers are those who break their marriage vows and have sex with those who are, they are not married to. Effeminate and homosexuals refer to both partners in a male relationship, Well, can a practicing homosexual be saved and change his sexual orientation and lifestyle? Well, culture today states that a person is born a homosexual or a lesbian, and therefore it is impossible for a person to change his sexual orientation. But all people are sinners by nature and choice. Feelings, desires, or an orientation are never an excuse for sin. Can you see the hope for homosexuals and the sexually immoral in this passage? They can be washed. They can be sanctified. They can be justified before God. They can live victorious over their sinful desires. God saved homosexuals back in the first century in the city of Corinth. Uh, There were people that changed their lifestyles and got out of the lifestyle of homosexuality. We know this because Paul wrote, such were some of you. There were believers there in the church that used to live that lifestyle, but were able to change. And the good news is this, uh, God is still in the business of changing hearts and offering forgiveness. All you have to do is cry out to him, ask him for forgiveness and put your trust in him and he will save you. all sinners have hope in god god's grace is sufficient uh, to cover your sins Um, we need to be careful as we're going through life that we don't let feelings guide us god's word is the only thing that should be guiding us as we go through this life and when there's clear uh, commands or things written in scripture such as uh, the view on marriage and sexuality We should not be throwing that aside in the name of tolerance or acceptance. No, instead, we should be shining God's light on people's sinful hearts to show them who they really are, to show them that God's wrath is coming for them, that they are destined for punishment. They are destined to spend eternity in hell. That is the loving thing to do. We need to shine God's light and let people know that there is hope out there, that he offers us grace and salvation. And this week, I want to remind you again to examine your own heart. It's easy for us to point our fingers at people uh, that participate in, in certain sins that we feel are worse or are more recognizable. But evaluate yourself and see what sins are going on in your life as God is accepting as those sins as he is of homosexuals. I mean, God hates all sin. And we need to be diligent to make sure that we do not have sin uh, creeping up in our lives. So let's end with our biblical response to this current cultural issue of alternative lifestyles. And it's this, share God's hope with those in alternative lifestyles we need to share god's hope with them they need the message of salvation just as much as any other sinner our memory verse for this week is ephesians 5 8 for you were formerly darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light well thank you again for joining me with this week's lesson next week we will be talking about Uh, personal purity we're going to look in and see how why there's a need for personal purity and then go over some truths that will help motivate us uh, to pursue personal purity in our lives both through our thoughts and our actions so I hope you join me for the next lesson